by then, right? Yeah. <laughs> My uh, intention today with all of you is that our conversation serve us in expanding our hearts and our minds. Okay. So, I don't have, I have a bunch of ideas about where our conversation might go today, but I don't have a plan. Um, last week, we've been, if you haven't been here before, we've spent two weeks kind of reading one or two, and then seeing, oh, well, that, that reminds me of this one, and then people share what they, so it's very free-flowing, and I appreciate everyone's wisdom and everybody's curiosity. So when we ended last time, we were on page, we looked at page one, number 14, of Hillel's saying, which is maybe one of the most famous sayings in all of Jewish uh, history. Of course. Esther, do you need a handout? Yes. Would you bring this over to Esther, please? Great. Hillel would say, Im ein anili mili. If I am not for myself, who will be for me? Vachani laatsmi ma'ani. But if I am only for myself, what am I? And if not, now when? We were closing last time with this. But we should say it every day. I mean, for me, this is the, the why this is such a um, timeless statement is that it's always true. Yeah. And it's that our actual path for living the life we want to lead as people of conscience and integrity involve constantly balancing our own needs with others. That's what it is. Uh, um, in fact, there, there's some um, selflessness is, is considered to be the, uh, the um, uh, quality of the completely righteous, right? A true tzaddik would have completely overcome their ego and have no personal needs, right? That's the idea of an enlightened being who just walks in the world with compassion, faith, knowing that everything in need will come to them, etc., etc. None of us are that. <laughs> Right? None of us in this room, nor anyone I've actually ever met, <laughs> are that. And therefore, the, 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 the examined life, the ethical life, is a life that understands that we're constantly having to evaluate the balance between what we need and the needs of others, whether it's local or political or global. Blaze? Um, <clears throat> this has just been ringing a bell for me this week because it calls to mind for me the need for me to advocate for myself, exactly. to speak up, to stand up, and to um, just be there and put myself out in a way that I may feel shy about or reluctant to do. And, um, Know, to take care of myself in a certain way, whether it's emotionally, spiritually, financially, physically, whatever. And so there are occasions when it's not just my ego's needs that um, I would be paying attention to. 
but it would also be, you know, what I need to do in order to move forward in my life with my goals, with my values, um, and with kind of real needs that I that I have, not you know, not the need for a, a new couch, but right. You know. I think it's a very important clarification because I'm not just talking about ego needs, right? And to make the generalization that has a lot of weight to it, most women, because of the nature of, of, of uh, uh, how we're raised and who knows all of what other factors and sexism, are trained to serve. And uh, I know many women whose big task in taking Hillel's words to heart would be, if I am not for myself, who will be for me? And that's a holy part. Hillel isn't saying that that's not equivalent that's right. to the other. Right. So you have to examine the balance in your life. Uh, maybe you need to be more for yourself. And of course, if I'm only for myself, what am I? Mm -hmm. But if I'm not for myself, who will be for me? Right? Uh, so, so now I know that, so I, again, this, this breaks down along gender conditioning to a large extent. That's when we talk about male privilege, cluelessly taking up space. That's what we're talking about, right? Everybody know, anyone know anyone like that? <laughs> um, so, um, and it doesn't mean that men also are doing that in a performative way where they haven't actually examined what their actual needs are. That's a whole other story. But for each of us, the beauty of this statement is that it's dynamic and that it doesn't privilege one of these two contrasting needs against the other. Right. And that it's our job to figure out if we are being for ourselves adequately in terms of having our voice heard in the world, being the standing up for what we believe in, any of it. Um, just to add to that about balance, um, I think a lot of people, and I used to think of it as something that was static, but it's not. It's a constant adjustment, and I kind of liken it to if you're riding a bike, you're always having to adjust a little bit. You can't just, you can't just ride on a straight line and not fall over. So there's this constant adjustment of the dynamic state of balance, not a static state. Thank you. Balance is never static, actually. Not for a living creature. So when we, coming from my dance training, when we stand up, we're never still. We're constantly adjusting. All the more so when we start walking or moving, where we are actually falling forward and then catching ourselves repeatedly. It's really a... It, it's a, the subtle dance of staying on track. Uh, certainly, is both you know, is a physical activity and an emotional and intellectual activity. Yes. So here's another interesting one with physics. This is what I was told. I like it. So if, when a plane is flying, it's actually not doing this. It's actually going a little bit over that way and then correcting and going a little bit mm. that way. And that's what gives it momentum. Oh. Isn't that interesting? And, and the other part that goes with that is, if it did this and this, 
it would still do it, but it would be a rocky ride. <laughs> <laughs> so that if we can kind of go, sometimes we have to go a little too far one way and go, oh, and, and kind of correct this way in order to get that momentum and balance. Yes, thank you. That's a great analogy. Barb? I love the bicycle thing. I love that. Now it's going to stick in my head, and that, that's a great one. Okay, bicycle. So I'm, I'm taking us off a little bit to where... I'm a, I can't figure out if Hillel actually said this, because it says Hillel would say on... Would say <laughs> means... Would is the... Um, oh, what's the... Ongoing. This was one of his teachings. Okay. So would say means it was one of his teachings. Which one are you looking at? I'm looking at, so number five, page two, and it says, do not be sure of yourself until the day you die. And good, he, good. Let's and, look at that whole one. And in Hebrew it says, but I mean, if, unless I'm... Hold on, let people catch up for a second. <laughs> number five on page two. We're going to read all of them. But Barb is focusing on the one that says, do not be sure of yourself until the day you die. All right, and well, and also in the Hebrew, if I'm unless I'm interpreting yeah. it wrong, al tamin or al tamin. Al tamin ba'atzmecha. Isn't that believe in yourself? Yes. So yeah, what does he okay. mean? He doesn't mean don't not have believe in yourself, but so he's clearly saying something to the effect of um, every every moment of our life is a is we don't know everything. It's a draft, right? I'm working on a draft constantly. I'm constantly revising my draft of what I think I'm supposed to be doing here. And it's changing all the time, too. So, to amen, that's why I translate it this way. Okay. Don't, don't believe in yourself. Don't, it's not, it, I can't imagine, hello men, don't believe in, you know, well, that's why I was to, so surprised. I was so, like, so what would be the kind of self-doubt that wouldn't be corrosive? I think that's the question here. So a lot of people don't believe in themselves to the degree that they don't trust themselves and their own voice, their own ability to live their lives. So that's a corrosive self-doubt. But there's a wise person's self-doubt, which is that I, I may not... I may get a different insight tomorrow. So it, my certainty here and how I'm going to act is a draft policy. It's a, it's a hypothesis. I'm going to experiment with it. I'm going to evaluate. And then tomorrow I may revise. Right? That's the path of wisdom. Sarah. It's the uh, bumper sticker you gave out. Uh, yes. I could, I, be wrong. Wrong. I could be wrong. I could be wrong. Right. Uh, so I made a bumper sticker, which I didn't invent. I saw someone else with it on their car. I said, where'd you get it? She said, I went online. I made it. Oh, my gosh. So I went online, and I made a bunch of magnetic bumper stickers that say, I could be wrong. And uh, they're real conversation starters. <laughs> I have one that says. Hold on, hold on, hold on. I met people from 25 states who took a photograph. <laughs> who took a photograph of that bumper sticker? Mine. Of yours? Who says that? Oh, that's beautiful. That's Very awesome. I'm uh, all over. And, and Diane, what were you going to say? There's one that says, don't believe everything you think. Right. <laughs> don't believe everything you think. I really like that one. Yes, yes, my crazy brain. Um, 
So let's, let's look, I think, let, oh, and don't forget that the third part of the phrase is, if not now, when? Mm -hmm. Which means that in every moment, we are in riding our bicycle dynamically, you know, and uh, uh, we are, have to be paying attention, evaluating, and what the hell are we waiting for? Um, is the other part of not now when, right? Im shav Yes, yes. So, let's look at these Hillel quotes that Barb turned our attention to. So we're on page two, number five. <coughs> um, just one second. These are all, um, what do you call it? They're proverbs, right? They're, they're, they're axioms. So in a few words, Hillel is saying something that requires continual expansion, reflection, conversation. But they do represent principles by which he thought we should live. Al tifrosh min ha-tzipur. Do not separate yourself from the community. So this is considered to be in, in the way Judaism develops, a, pr a prime Jewish directive of Hillel, that life is with people, and that uh, we don't have a hermetic, that is, a hermit um, tradition in Judaism, where you go off and uh, you find God on your own. Right? If you do do that, you always come back. Right? The goal is not your communion with the divine. The goal is what you do with your communion with the divine in terms of how you express it in the community you live in. So, um, I, as I said a long time ago, it means that the Jewish path is messy. Yes. Because it involves people. <laughs> uh, I think that's a good line. Yes. <laughs> And we blame other people, and we say, what is this? Why do... uh, sorry. <laughs> if you found a non-messy life, let me know. Okay? Uh, uh, some people find it by going off by themselves. That would not be considered to be the Jewish way. Uh, because Judaism, as you know, in so many aspects, um, makes community the vessel for our lives. That's why you don't read the, study the Torah and read the, you don't read the Torah in synagogue without a minion, without ten people. You don't say the mourner's prayer traditionally without ten people. It's like, hmm? or the or the call to prayer, um, and and so you know, I and it it's not a monastic tradition. It never has been. Um, so, uh, I like that one. Yes, Rob? So, when I read this, and, and I don't want to say this pejoratively, but I, I wonder, like, how does this play with the Hasidic community? Because I sort of see them as a community right. that's disconnected from the larger community. Right. And I just, I just, it sort of... So, like every directive, how are you going to apply it? Are you going to apply it to... And, and the question there is, who's your community? Mm -hmm. That's the question. Right. 
So if your community is a closed group, you can still fulfill this because you've defined community that way. And uh, uh, once again, I want to express that before 200 years ago, before the modern era, the Jewish community and every other community had no, um, were not, did not interact except in the marketplace, right? Those interactions were all, they, they it wasn't understood, the idea of humanity as a community, the idea of multiculturalism as something that includes more than our group didn't exist. So when Hillel said this, he was referring to the Jewish community, right? That was how it operated. There are, and as we've talked about, there are many commandments in Judaism about how you treat the stranger, the non-Jew, right? And you have to treat them well. But we should be clear that that comes from a time when they were not your community. You had no uh, particular interest in them. They weren't part of your community. So we have a challenge as modern Jews to translate, I'm going to say this over and over and over again, to translate pre-modern ideas into our contemporary universal ideas, which means that they get very, um, uh, the boundaries get confusing. And we say we live in an era with confusing boundaries. I think it's why people are drawn to cults and closed communities, because this is like too much. You know, what do I mean? Everybody's my family? You know, what, what? So, uh, so, what modern Judaism does, if it's not, if it has embraced modernity rather than ultra-orthodoxy, which rejects modernity and tries to close itself off from modernity, any other Jewish uh, uh, group that embraces modernity is faced with this big challenge of transforming Judaism from a pre-modern into a modern ideology. We have all the, all the equipment we need here, but it means we also have to change what we mean by this, or what we mean by the word community. Does that make sense? Great answer. And uh, <laughs> one of the reasons I like being a Reconstructionist rabbi is that Mordecai Kaplan, when he, when he framed this approach called Reconstructionism in the early 20th century, was explicit about this. We don't have to do it and say, well, this is what the tradition really means. And, and we can just say, that was then, this is now. What do we mean by this word? And that allows me to say it freely and then engage in the creative work that that involves. Because I think, don't you think, from what we've read so far uh, in just these three weeks, that, that these ancient Jewish wisdom teachings have something to offer us? Right? So why would we reject them out of hand? Because they come from a different era in which the idea of who's in your community was a different concept. Right? Why? You know, so I don't want to do that. And just one other question. Yeah, sure, Rob. So the previous Hillel quote, that is used by so many people all over the world from right. all backgrounds. It is constantly <laughs> surfacing up to the top of sort of that's right. Dialogue. It's, it's incredible. Well, I think if I had to choose one phrase exactly. as my personal mission statement that I want to look at every day, it would probably be that one. Exactly. Which one? If I'm not for myself, oh. who will be for me? Mm -hmm. But if I'm only for myself, what am I? Mm -hmm. And if not now, when? It's like, what more? 
you know, what more is there that I need to really, you know, I can go from there. It was referenced on the, uh, uh, in Congress, I think, just last week by a very right-wing evangelical, uh, you know, Republican, yeah. and, mm. and it's because it's true. Because it's true. Yeah. Right. Carol, you wanted to say something. Yeah. Um, for me, that, I don't, I think it's about do not separate yourself. I, I read that about the dangers of isolation. I was thinking... I was thinking when you were saying about how we're not supposed to pray, we're not supposed to pray alone and, and well, it's not that we're not supposed to pray not, alone. No, but I mean not not we have to pray in minion and mm -hmm. and and this goes back to you know why I had problems with that thing last week about about rewards and and things like that. Um, I will not have the same experience here today if Susan and Barb were not sitting on either side. I right. may not. I may not be aware of how that affects me. I may not. I'm, I may not ever think about it. But something is changed just because of that, and the danger of doing it all alone. You know, Jerome is going away to spend the winter in a in an in a assist, assisted living place because he gets so damn lonely at home. He's, he's totally separate. He doesn't often feel strong enough to come out. But, and he goes to a lot of doctor's appointments. But I watch this isolation and it's terrifying to me. It's like my worst, my, my worst fantasy of what getting older will mean. And so I'm so grateful and, and oh, this wonderful thing is happening. Um, so I, I don't worry about what the community is. It doesn't, it, it, as I read it, it's like, who's around me? That's my community. Mm -hmm. And I don't have to define it, but I do have to remember to not separate. <coughs> Beautiful. Let's take it in that direction. So we don't get hung up on who is our community. But that it's what Carol says, which is that isolation or the illusion that we're self-contained. Uh, and it's not even whether we need other people. We're utterly affected by the people around us, we, just as you said. And our experience here is thanks to everyone else's presence not in spite of. Um, so that's a beautiful way of what it means to don't separate yourself. Mm -hmm. Don't do that up here either. Uh, even if you're sitting in the room. That's beautiful. Blaze? Um, this brings to mind what people often do when they're grieving or depressed or sad or not feeling well. Mm -hmm. Many people are afraid to reach out and say, help, I need help. I need somebody, I need to talk to somebody, I need somebody to listen to me. I want you to know that I'm suffering in some way. And the idea, I don't know where it came from, the idea that we're not supposed to ask for help, we're only supposed to give it. And one of the things that I offer to people is that if you ask someone for help, if you ask me for help, you're actually doing me a service. 
because you're giving me an opportunity to be of service, and that's a great gift. So the circle of giving and receiving is not broken. Beautifully put. It's, it, 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 it's confounding to me that, that precisely the, uh, the message of, of, of uh, clinical depression is that you're alone and that you can't reach out. I mean, it's like, it's so damning, it's so horrible. Uh, maybe, maybe, maybe we can just keep training ourselves to know that even when we don't feel like we can ask, we should ask. You know, otherwise, when it's got us in its grip, then it's just, we, it's, it's so, so much, so hard to reach out. Miriam? Well, <coughs> I remember in the 60s, 50s and 60s, when women were being put away, being given lobotomies, mm -hmm. giving horrible drugs, because they couldn't maintain being a proper housewife mm -hmm. or whatever. And I think that really has impinged a lot of fear that if I let it be known how disturbed I am inside, I Oh, you could get put away. Yes. Mm-hmm. Oh, I tell you, I was in terror. Sure. Whoa. Sure. Yes, if you generation. you could get put away if you yeah, seem too needy know. or not. Uh, this is mm -hmm. in the seventies. They were putting women away, daughters. They still put girls away <coughs> instead of if they've been incested, instead of <coughs> the incestor confronting it, they'll put them the daughter away as if she's crazy. Mm -hmm. So I think it had there is a lot of fear in the society. Thank you. Thank you. Ava, did you want to add something? Going back to where we started today, this whole conversation now is back to that balancing act. And that if you are living alone, that isolated type of life, it's not balanced. Because there's no input. There's no input from the outside. And it's all this socialization process. That is our learning process. This is why we appreciate our elderly because they have had all this input over the years. And when they start sharing it with us and we listen, that's an additional learning source for all of us. And it's like the bicycle, you know, that being on your own, you go off to the left or to the right, whichever way you go, you've left that balancing act. And you, you have to keep coming back. Mm -hmm. so, well put, well put. So, which leads me to say, that is the unquantifiable value of our attempts to be a community. Right? A place to come and be with people whose intentions are good, even if our execution is mediocre. Nice. <laughs> yes. Right? Um, and uh, uh, for that very reason, because in our current society and how it's constructed, where we're atomized into individual consuming units and more and more and more we can live a life where we're not attracting people, where all the both challenges and rewards of being enmeshed in a communal framework can be, you can just, you can drift away from them all. Uh, 
and and, and also then in the online world uh, become yeah. part of uh, um, pseudo communities um, that that can really send you off the deep end. Um, uh, so Can I add one thing yes. to that? Is that, however, you still need those moments on your own. If I'm not for myself. Correct. So that this is that balancing act again, because if you don't have those moments on your own, that quiet time, that period of self-evaluation cannot take place. Thank you. Thank you. Barbara, I'll recognize you in a second. I just also want to add that the other sort of meta or largest consciousness thing about that is this, I'll repeat, we suffer as human beings from the illusion of separateness. Now, we need that separateness. We need to see ourselves as discrete functioning beings so that we can live our lives in the world, right? If all we are is in our right brain where everything is all, where I don't even remember my name and I'm, in, I'm blissfully interacting with the entire universe, um, I'm not going to be able to make my way through life. So again, it's a, it's a balancing act. But um, there's also this illusion of separateness that isolates us. And uh, um, <coughs> I think we have to retrain ourselves on that one constantly. Barb? Yeah, well, in line with what you're saying about being online, uh, I think many have been tricked, I think I'll use that word, into thinking that social media and being in touch with people online is that socialization that they need, that community that they need. But in, I believe in reality, and, and it can help sometimes, you know, even like hotlines can help talking to people. Right. But that's different. Um, but if we think that that's it, that that's how we can spend our weeks, our months, whatever, or even just a day, we're mistaken. I mean, yep. we're sorely mistaken. Thank you. Well, I'm an old guy who's not really interested too much in these, uh, in online communities, but I do read a lot about it, and I do know that many well-meaning people are trying to see how they can leverage mm -hmm. young people's engagement in online stuff into, into meaningful interactions with each other. So we'll see what happens. Yeah. We'll see what happens. Ellen? I was just thinking that it's also true that everyone has a different need for alone time and, and community time. And that, again, it's just a matter of knowing what you need, being willing to accept that that's who you are. Right. And, and, um, and honoring that, and that we're never separate when we're right. alone, because we are interconnected well with said. everything. Well said. But just honoring your own balance. Thank you. Having, having married an introvert, and being such an <laughs> extrovert myself, meaning I get fed by interaction, they don't drain me in the same way that introverts get drained by them, it, and just to make a, a big generalization, it's been, a, it's been great because I've had to learn. I've had to expand my sense of that, oh, the way I roll is not how the way the whole world rolls. I think that's been a good education for me um, and enriching. Yeah. This is why I love the, the prayer that we say, you are loved by an unending love. 
because it, it really gets both sides of this. Even when you don't want it, we're here. And by the way, we is us. Yeah. You all know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah. Thank you. Yes, Susan. Well, I think that people sometimes, even in a group, get Speak a little louder if you uh, can. I think sometimes people, even in a group, feel isolated because they sometimes feel that they're some of, I'll say, our, our own personal issues are just ours, you know, because sometimes people project, you know, certain images and they're not really open about who they are. So sometimes people can feel alone even within a group, uh, which I think why I've always liked small groups or being with a friend or two, because I've always liked just being real about where I am and hearing where the other person's at, whereas somehow in a big group, um, I feel there's more of an image kind of thing. Do you know what I'm saying? Sure. You know? Um, sure. So I think that uh, it's nice to have both. I mean, time alone is important, I think, to have and be in touch with yourself and even for creative processes. But I think that also um, time in little groups or with a f one friend as well as sharing in a bigger group like this. Thank you. Thank you. And there's something I strive for all the time in myself that I hope I can convey to my kids. Um, because, you know, I talked to my younger daughter who's in college. <laughs> And we still have conversations that I'm the only one in my group who. And I, you know, it's like, oh, but then there are occasional glimmers where it's like she knows that that's not really true because she is paying attention to her friends and does know what they're struggling with. So I just want to, I pray for her and for all of us that we grow the voice inside us that remembers all the time that other people face similar struggles. That's what I want. Yeah. So that we don't feel uniquely, specially bad. You know, which is a way of self-centeredness in its own strange way. Um, it just puts us under everyone instead of over everyone. And it's also useless. A useless thought pattern. We have it, but it has no value. Because we're not, we're not unique in our struggles. Everyone in this room, I bet, we have something we can relate to about what they are wrestling with at this moment. And so I just pray for my kids and then for me and for all of us that we develop the voice inside that says, you're not unique. You're not uniquely isolated. You're not uniquely alone. You are not uniquely suffering. That doesn't mean that's not to discount you, but it's to make sure you don't get isolated in that. That's very, speaking as, you know, speaking as a parent, that's like, that's all I want right now uh, when I have this conversation and I, I try a million strategies to get the message in, you know, with, until, until I've reached the point of diminishing return. <laughs> Laurie? Can you tell the story about the rabbi who has people sitting under the tree and he says to people, you all have the problems and it's your opportunity to take your problems. Wait, I didn't tell this story. Mm -hmm. Someone else did. Tell it. 
Nice and loud. Oh my gosh, I remember Rabbi. <laughs> Rabbi sitting under a tree with a whole group of people and everybody's complaining about their life, which is miserable, and I have a problem with this, that, and the next thing. So the rabbi gives them an opportunity to take their problem and hang it on a branch on the tree. Everybody gets up and takes their problem and hangs it up on the tree, and they come back feeling really great. They have no problems. <laughs> and the rabbi says, another opportunity, since we're talking about life. You now have the opportunity to go to the tree and choose any problem you want. <laughs> they all go back to the tree and they pick their particular problem. <laughs> they like to complain about it. <laughs> no, I did not tell that story. I love that. You will. I will now. Yeah. <laughs> so taking that forward, let's look at the next thing Hillel said. Because it's, again, it's about practicing getting outside of our own, you know, sort of uh, um, uh, isolation. Do not, we did do not be sure of yourself until the day you die. We talked about that. Do not judge your fellow human being until you have stood in their situation. Which number are we in? We're in number five on page two. Number three. I'll stand in number five. I see. In Hebrew, Al Tadine Chaverha, Do not judge your fellow until you have arrived in their place or stood in their place. So, didn't Confucius say that too? Or? Atticus Finch. Atticus Finch, yep. <laughs> My hero, absolutely. The Native American don't judge someone as you've walked a Walked a mile in their moccasins, yeah. right? Right. Good so interpretation you, of that. Yeah, don't, nice and loud. Don't judge another person until you've walked a mile in their shoes. That way, if they get angry, you'll be a mile away and they'll be buried. <laughs> Did you hear that? If they, get, if they get angry, you'll be a mile away and they'll be barefoot so they won't kill them. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> then Hillel said, so I know, so the Jewish tradition has this same axiom that is a cross-wisdom tradition. Do not say it is not possible to understand this, for ultimately it will be understood. That's an interesting one, huh? And it's hard to translate. Al-tomar davar she'iv shari lehishama. It's hard to translate that one. I looked at a lot of translations. Don't say, no one will ever understand this, because in the end it will be understood. Now is he talking about you know, in the, in, you know, at the end of history, you know, when the Messiah comes, or is he talking about ultimately, we don't know exactly. Um, but I like it. Um, and does he mean understood? Does he mean cognitively, intellectually, or is it a different kind of comprehension that he's talking about? I would suspect he's not talking about a, um, uh, a, a math, um, Problem. Yeah. Yeah, I had a student this morning. I, I teach acting, um, for those of you who don't know. And I had a student this morning who kept saying, I don't know and I can't imagine. <laughs> and about whatever. And I don't know that I've ever even done this with myself, but I just slowed her down and I wouldn't let her say, I don't know or I can't imagine. And I just started to describe a situation that was 
probably in her life that could be similar to the situation in the play. And as I spoke about it, she had this enormous emotional reaction. And so of course she knew, <laughs> and of course she would, could imagine, but, but not if you shut it down oh. at that moment. Not if you say, I don't know, it's so easy. And I can't imagine it's so easy. And it's protective. It's like, I, I don't want to go there is what you're really saying. And you have that right. But it's not that you don't know and it's not that you can't imagine. Oh, Carol, that's so helpful. I've never put it into this line. Thank you. So it's not about, it's not some external problem that we're trying to solve, like the meaning of life. Um, it's if your reaction to something is, no, it's not possible. I can't, I can't, I won't. And yet, to make the leap into, once again, imagining and empathy, and it's our fear that would keep stepping us in the shoes. Step, stepping into the shoes. I think I, I, that sounds like Hillel to me. Yeah. That really does. <laughs> that really does. Thank you. Lori, and then Lori. I think it's the same thing with the word understand. I think that just shuts down the conversation. Right. Oh, right. I understand you're having a hard time. Right. And then you go on to something else. I don't like that word understand. I can feel for you, I can empathize with you, but do I really understand what that person's going through? I really don't. Thank you. Thank you. Lori, and then David. I'm not sure. I had a thought that I thought is on point, but I'm not sure if it is. So, in terms of that block that comes up when you can't understand and you can't figure something out or it seems insurmountable. I've just so many times had the experience of the complete opposite happening at another time, like the whole thing unraveling mm. and the understanding emerging. Right. I've had it so many times in different contexts. You know, it could be it could be a mysterious kind of spiritual thing, or it could be just a technical problem, or it could right. be a mathematical, or, right. a, or an organizational problem. It's very strange, and it's so what you're saying. It's like there's something that comes up that creates a mist or the smoke gets in your eyes or something. And then at another moment, or maybe with a certain practice or, or just withdrawal or a different perspective, all of a sudden the understanding comes. And so Right. So thank you. So yes, there we are. We hammer ourselves trying to get a solution. And sometimes what we have to practice is releasing and just like letting go, which requires breathing, breathing <coughs> faith, patience, that the answer will emerge. And then the mystery is, where did that answer come from? Right, that's Two. Did it come from my trying, my head, or where? And that gets back to what we were discussing last week about the creative process. It's like, so once again, there's this balance of striving and then knowing when to back off and wait. Um, you know, I'll say this, uh, a book in college I read by a, a guy named Sam Keane that you may remember, yeah. uh, who was um, a wonderful philosopher. Is he still alive? I hope so. Um, and all I'm going to share with you, because you know how some things just stick with you, is how he ended one of his books, which he says he used to, uh, he grew up around the Chesapeake Bay, and he used to go, love to swim in the ocean, and there was a riptide where the tide would go out from the bay and, 
and he learned that if he swam against that, he would get exhausted and he could drown. But if he knew when it was time, he would let the tide carry him, and it carried him around the point, and then he could swim to shore. And he said, wisdom is knowing when to swim hard and when to let the current take you. I've never forgotten that. I try to remember it. So that's what I thought of when you were talking, Lori. Um, so when we're done hammering, then we have to try a different approach. When Carol teaches, she teaches people to breathe. Uh, just one second, Betsy, because David wanted to share something. When I read this, I, I focused more on the phrase, not possible, the negative. The negative. And the second, well, I always try to change, turn that around into the positive. And if it's under, if, if you can get rid of the negative, then the positive is, is there. It's going to open up automatically. Thank you. Um, Do you want to see more about that? Well, that's, and eventually maybe you'll get to understand whatever it was. Mm -hmm. or, do the thing that you're holding back from doing or going out instead of being isolated or whatever. Right. But move away from the next Right. Thank you. Betsy and then Sarah? Just a quick comment about this hammering. Personally, when I was younger, I was afraid to hammer. I was afraid to say, I don't understand. But then people would think I'm stupid. Oh, so yes. I went along with it, and I said, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. And it was only later on, after seminars and maybe some <laughs> self-introspection, uh, that I began to realize, hey, I need to know this. I want to know it, or at least search for an answer. And, and so that's an evolution, too. It is, it is. I mean, it, for many of us, as we get older, we want, what do we want to tell our younger selves? It's like... Um, Maybe it's age, you know, hey, I don't care. Well, age, age, it, but not if you, you know, getting old isn't automatic wisdom. <laughs> but it is the product of lots of searching, then, yeah, we learn a thing or two. Thank you. Sarah. Oh, I just want to dovetail on what David was saying, that literally if you just take out the word not, then you're always coming up with, uh, an open possibility, essentially. Thank you. Well said. Well said. Let's look at the next one. And do not say, when I make free time for myself, I will study. For perhaps you will never make that time. This is Hillel and the If Not Now When uh, track. Oh, boy. And when he says study... I need to swing back to this, back to what I said at the beginning. For the rabbis, studying Torah was not just an intellectual activity. It was this. How are we supposed to live? What does it mean to be a good person? What's asked of me in this life? All of those questions. Uh, this is not study. Uh, uh, this, if, if it's something you're passionate about that you say you want to learn, beautiful. But... It's very broadly understood. And then in number six, this is one of his most famous sayings. Yeah. 
ובמקום שאין אנשים, השתדל להיות איש. Where there are no worthy persons, and the word there, אנשים, is, this is a masculine language, אנשים means man, right? So, but we, what he means by אנשים, because he wasn't just speaking about men, Necessarily, that's just the way the language works, just like mankind uh, in our era, which we're trying to surmount. So I translated it as mensch. Where there are no worthy persons, strive to be a worthy person. Or we could just say, where there are no human beings, strive to be a human being. Boy, take that one in. Again, each one of these is like a directive that you could like put front and center in your consciousness. Let me share a couple of Hillel quotes that are not in this collection, just because I pulled Hillel out. Um, so, you don't have this with you. When Hillel would leave his students, he would used to go off for a walk. His students asked him, where are you going? He answered, to perform a mitzvah. They said to him, oh yeah, what mitzvah? He said to them, I'm going to take a bath in the bathhouse. <laughs> and they said to him, this is a mitzvah? <laughs> okay, why? Because these were Roman bathhouses. Right? And uh, uh, so they were filled with idol statues. They were all of, they, for, the, for the rabbinic world, this was all about hedonism and uh, excess, and uh, um, uh, so, but he says he's going to the bathhouse to take a bath, and if this is a mitzvah, he answered, it is. If the statues erected to kings in the theaters and circuses are washed and scrubbed by those in charge of them, remember, they live in the Roman world, Rome, Judea is a province of Rome, how much more should we who have been in, created in God's image and likeness, take care of our bodies. <laughs> As it is written, for in the image of God were the humans created. So this is a beautiful story. He's messing with his students. I love it. Like, they're like, the Romans are bad. You know, and they, the Romans, there was a lot about the Roman occupation of, of, of Judea that was horrible. Uh, just read Jesus' story. They crucified him. You know, but, um, uh, it, and uh, later, a hundred years later, uh, during the Bar Kokhba rebellion, they outlawed the study of Torah, and they executed any rabbi who was caught teaching Torah. I mean, the Romans, they destroyed Jerusalem, they demolished the temple, they put hundreds of thousands of Jews into slavery, they scattered us up. Romans, Romans. And here's Hillel <coughs> saying, I'm going to the bathhouse so his students can freak out and he can give them a teaching which is that if those statues of kings get washed and scrubbed, then what about us, each of us who is made in the image of the king of kings? I love that teaching. Another version of this story runs, Rabbi, where are you going? To which he answered, to do a kind deed for a guest in my house. They said to him, does this guest stay with you every day? 
He answered, yeah, it's my poor soul. Is it, is it not a guest in this body, here today and gone tomorrow? I'm going to make its house as nice as possible. I love that story. So even though most Jewish teachings, even though most Jewish teachings do not concern themselves with bodily appearance, with, you know, this one. But just it wasn't said, appearance. It was the really deep taking care taking of Taking care of your body. All I'm saying is there aren't too many of these right. in Judaism, but the fact that there's a Hillel one gives it extra currency because he was, as I said last time, if you weren't here last time, Hillel, you could call the founding father of rabbinic Judaism. He's considered to be <clears throat> truly the, 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 the source of the lineage on which all these other rabbis teach. When did he live? He lived in just before, uh, the, just, just before the turn into the modern, into the millennium. So he probably was about, died about 10 BC, probably. Oh. He predates Jesus. Okay. And again, this is very important because many of Jesus' teachings right. are clearly molded after the school of Hillel, who had already established himself as the leading rabbinic authority of that time. Uh, a hand, please. This is the first time that it has ever occurred to me to think of myself as a guest in my body. Yeah. It's a really, is. Wow, uh-huh. You know, because <clears throat> I guess it's sort of self-explanatory why I would be amazed at that, at the truth of that. Because while I am here and present in my body, I'm a guest and I'm not gonna, someday I'm gonna wear out my welcome. <laughs> or my welcome will be worn out. Well said. So we are guests in this body, temporary, here today, gone tomorrow. Let's make it as, oh wow, beautiful. Oh my goodness, I'm thinking about the ways I have hated my appearance mm -hmm. most of my life. Like, what a waste. <laughs> yeah. And to treat myself as I would treat an honored guest in my home. Yeah. Oh, beautiful. You know, that's something that um, beautiful. I need to do more often. I would never criticize the guest for the clothes they're wearing or for what they're eating or for what they show up. Or how God made them. Right. I, you know, it's really, I really want to meditate on that one for a while. Oh, yeah. Let's all stop right now. Let's, right this second, let's all stop being critical of our own uh, uh, physical selves. Let's just stop for a second, right now. Just for a second? Oh, well, let's just, hold on. Man, if you can keep it up, do so. I can do a second. You can do a second, that's what I'm saying. Just do it for a second and feel the relief. And also the kindness. I mean it. Oh, God. So much time wasted. Such a shame. But it's not over yet. We can start, we can, if not now, when? If not now, when? Thanks, please. Thanks, hello. <laughs> and all, all of us beautiful people around this table. Everyone here. Take a look, by the way. Yeah, it's amazing. beautiful. <laughs> Just beautiful. <laughs> oh, right, that's, that's it, what we do in services. You look divine because you're made in the image of God. So. <laughs>
Aaron. When I've had an internal thought about what somebody else might be wearing, I've also at the same time had a voice come in and say, but they feel beautiful in that. God willing, yeah, thank you. God willing. Then, thank you. <laughs> so it's just the reminder, like, my beauty is not their beauty is not their beauty. Mm, just beautiful, thank you. <clears throat> Since we're staying with Hillel, let's, I want to stay with Hillel, and let's look at one of the most important teachings of Hillel, which is on page 9, all the way in the back, number 19. And I know we've discussed this before, but given, uh, given our human situation, don't get tired. Hold on one second, Nate, while people are finding it. Okay, hold on, Nate wants to say something. Yeah, no, I mean, nice and loud. About thinking of yourself as beautiful and what you wear. What do you do when you put something on and you look at yourself in the mirror and you think, well, that looks really great, and you walk downstairs and your wife says, I can't believe you wear that. <laughs> Or your child, right, right. It's a problem, isn't it? Nick? Yeah. <laughs> Sarah. Mother, your mother, right? yeah. Mm -hmm. And one time she was t telling me, oh, I got the most beautiful jacket. I can't wait to show you. <laughs> and she pulls it out, and she, she shows me the jacket, and my mind is saying, oh, my God, that is the <laughs> ugliest thing I've ever heard, seen. <laughs> and my adult says, Mom, I am so glad you found something that you enjoy so much. <laughs> Good for you. Right? Good for you. Because to reign in her parade? I don't have to do what she did. Okay. Beautiful. So there is a, there's another, so Hillel, we're going to go, when we read 19, we'll learn about Hillel and Shammai. Many of us have heard of Hillel and Shammai. Shammai was Hillel's counterpart, the leader of his own school of thought, and the two of them were essentially, let's say, the ruling parties in the Jewish Sanhedrin, in the, um, the Jewish uh, legislative and religious body that made decisions for the Jewish community. So Hillel and Shammai are quoted more in the Talmud, they were contemporary, than almost any pair of disputants, okay? And hundreds of times. And as well as the, the, what's called the House of Hillel, or the School of Hillel, and the School of Shammai. So I want to talk about that a little bit with you. But since Sarah mentioned that story, here is a typical Hillel versus Shammai story. And did they really say this? Is this the actual, you know, what do you call it? Um, Transcription. No, I don't think so. I think these are wisdom teachings uh, d uh, distilled over time and put in the mouths of the uh, appropriate voice. Yes? And you must remember that they were very, very respectful of one another in their dissensions. That's where we're That's going. The and the fact that the ultra-Orthodox community would follow Shammai and not Hillel is uh, one of the interesting differences if you study community as opposed to isolation. Well, yes, but you can't, you can't make that statement about the ultra-Orthodox uh, um, because they, all, they follow Jewish law, and right. Jewish law is according to Hillel. Right. It's how they define things right. that's different than us. But we're going to get to that. So uh, this story, they are debating 
about what it means to tell the truth. When do you tell, when do you, when do you, and, they, and so they use, as always, in the rabbinic tradition, an extreme example. There's a bride, and she's wearing a horrific outfit. <laughs> do you say to the bride, you look beautiful, or do you tell them that's an ugly dress? <laughs> right? <laughs> and the House of Hillel says, what, are you crazy? You tell them they look beautiful. And Shammai says, no, you tell them. You tell them that they, that's, that's, and this is a debate. Well, the question about that, as I discuss often with kids, is that um, telling the truth does not mean sharing your unvarnished opinion. We know that this, we know the difference between, you know, when telling the, tell, speaking your truth does not mean speaking your judgment about somebody else's what they like to wear or not. That's not the truth. That's your opinion. But anyway, the issue that they're debating is that it's considered in Judaism and rabbinic law one of the greatest no-nos is to shame someone, especially publicly. Uh, and if there's no reason to shame, to shame them, I mean, there's, there's a time for public shaming in Judaism, right? If it's going to get someone who's doing something evil, and it might help them, might, might get them to stop. Otherwise, you are never supposed to shame someone. And that has, that, tr that, that, um, uh, I don't want to use the word trumps anymore. I don't know what word to use. I know. Um, <laughs> supersedes. That supersedes. Uh, just because it makes, gives us like, like, adjectives. Yes, yes. So, um, so that supersedes, um, so not shaming someone supersedes any desire to share your opinion or to make, you know, to spout off or to, you just, what's, you don't do it. Um, and, uh, I, I thought I'd mention that. So let's look at number 19 here on page 9. Any controversy that is for the sake of heaven will have lasting value. But a controversy not for heaven's sake will not endure. So when they say L'Shem Shamayim, for the sake of heaven, that's a rabbinic idiom for, which I would translate as, for the greatest good. No, not for self-aggrandizement, but any dispute to engage in, because all parties are trying to come up with a solution, the best solution, is considered to have enduring worth. But any controversy uh, that is not for heaven's sake, that in other words, that is for the sake of what? Your ego, ego your desire to be right, uh, has no lasting value. There's a lot of arguments that we engage in are complete waste of air, right? Uh, what is an example of controversy for heaven's sakes? The debate of Hillel, the debates of Hillel and Shammai. And what is an example of a controversy not for heaven's sake? The arguments of Korach and his associates. So if you're not familiar with the story of Korach, in the book of Numbers, Korach is Moses' cousin, who publicly confronts him along with a whole bunch of other leaders and says, who made you the big chief? Aren't all of us holy? Shouldn't we all, you know? And what ensues it is uh, a conflict where in great wish fulfillment, Hillel is swallowed, uh, um, uh, uh, Korach gets, the earth opens up and swallows him and he disappears. 
and that's my favorite end of that story. <laughs> so, um, but anyway, and some of his kids survived. Yes, but anyway, let me just hold on one second. After the point is, is that you can argue that Korach's making a good argument, but the Jewish tradition considers Korach's argument to be completely about self. Um, because um, right, it interest. was. Well, it, it, <laughs> when you study Jewish sources, a few sources say Korach was right. Most of them say he was a demagogue, a self-aggrandizing uh, grandstander. And uh, oh yeah, so so that's Korach. Esther. So I had a um, a little dispute with my oldest daughter. Um, I wanted her to comb her hair and put on lipstick and go down. Mm -hmm. And she looked at me and she said, I am 58 years old. <laughs> Mm -hmm. it, it shifts. Mm -hmm. 
So here are some stories about Hillel and Shammai. Although the house of Shammai and the house of Hillel disagreed, the house of Shammai did not nevertheless abstain from marrying women of the families of the house of Hillel, nor did the house of Hillel refrain from marrying those of the house of Shammai. This is to teach you that they showed love and friendship towards one another. Okay, again, this is an old male-centered text, but uh, um, they did not cut themselves off socially from one another, nor from inter in mingling their family. It's big. Think about what Judaism is saying by that story and what the, comp, what the typical tendency is of human beings. And again, all, I don't need to elaborate on our, on our current moment. Although it makes me think of Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Justice Scalia. Yes, yes. yes. exactly. Couldn't be more opposed, but managed to always Ruth find some Bell's. common ground. They found common ground, they went to the opera, they figured out how to stay connected. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Even, you know, they did that. Collegiality. Be the word. And respect. Uh, and respect. Here's another one. And this is a very important rabbinic story. And, and it has a, a part A and a part B. So, Rabbi Abba said in the name of Samuel, for three years the house of Hillel and the house of Shammai disagreed. This side said that the halacha, the Jewish law, uh, is in accordance with us. And they said the halacha is in accordance with us. <laughs> Finally, a heavenly voice emerged and said, Both these and those are the words of the living God. Mm -hmm. that That's the rabbi saying that in a, in a de debate for, for that purpose, they can both be right. But since you need to make a decision, since they're deciding on law, the... the um, both these and these are the words of the living God. But the law is going to be in accordance with the house of Hillel. Okay, so then the rabbis say, why? Since both these and those are words of the living God, why was the law established in accordance with the house of Hillel? Because they were civil and patient. And they would teach both their own views and the views of the house of Shammai in the academy. Uh -huh. Moreover, they would say the state the, the view of the house of Shammai before they would state their own. Mm -hmm. This is so deep. Mm -hmm. And remember, wherever we we're, you know, we're human beings and we get off track, way off track. But this is the core teaching about what the rabbinic tradition wants us to understand about how you debate. It's it's really amazing. Like uh, they were patient. They were civil, and they always cited the minority opinion, which are all the minority opinions, by the way, are all included in the Talmud. All these, they all get included in the Talmud. But why the House of Hillel? Because of the way they treated the opposing side. So for Judaism, therefore, they're saying something really kind of subversive and astonishing, that the actual practice is less important. The actual, whether you light the Hanukkah candles from this side or this side, which is one of the things they debate about, by the way. They debate about everything. 
and they have reasons. You do it this way because of this. No, you do it this way. And so, underneath all of the rigidity we've inherited around what Jewish law is, when you actually look at the source, they are saying that the law is not, it could be that, but it's this. Why? Because of the process by which it was reached. The process is more important than the final result. That's Hillel. So deep. Blows me away. I love that this is in, I love that this is our Jewish heritage. Um, and we have to learn it over and over again. And over. Um, and uh, I think there's one more Hillel teaching I want to share with you. Oh, yes. Because this is the one that you'll be familiar with. Um, which source shall I use? Um, it happened that a certain heathen, heathen, this is an old translation, a certain, a certain Gentile came before Shammai and said to him, take me as a student for conversion, but only on the condition that you teach me the entire Torah while standing on one foot. <laughs> Remember that? Does yes. ring a bell? Yes. yes. This is the whole source. Shammai, who was a, uh, who was a, uh, a builder, had a uh, uh, surveyor's stick in his hand. He instantly drove him away with the stick he happened to have in his hand. Get out of here. <laughs> right? Uh, when the non-Jew, when the Gentile came before Hill with the same request, Hillel said to him, what is hateful to you, do not do to your fellow. This is the entire Torah, all of it. The rest is commentary. Go and study. That's the story. Uh, that's the Torah while standing on one foot. So here's how the rest of the story goes. Later, when this Gentile did become a Jew, he met two other converts who had experienced similar treatment at the hands of Shammai and Hillel. They said to one another, Shammai's severity drove us away, but Hillel's gentleness brought us under the wings of the divine presence. And that is why the saying goes, a person should always be as flexible as Hillel, not as inflexible as Shammai. Um, that's where that story comes. Beautiful, isn't it? Thank you. It's also not... Nice and loud. Uh, it's also not what you say, but how you say it. Also. <laughs> That's the phrase. It's not, not what you say, but how you say it. In other words, uh, well, you know, when I talked about this a few years of the High Holidays, I read a poem by um, Yehuda Amichai, the latest Israeli poet. It's called The Place Where We Are Right. From the place where we are right, flowers will never grow in the spring. Mm. Because the place where we are right is hard and trampled like a yard. Mm. But doubts and love dig up the world like a mole or a plow. And a whisper can be heard in the place where the ruined house once stood. That's the poem. But I just love the beginning of it. And then, of course, I'll read it again. 
From the place where we are right, flowers will never grow in the spring. <clears throat> the place where we are right is hard and trampled like a yard. But doubts and loves dig up the world like a mole or a plow. And a whisper will be heard in the place where the ruined house once stood. Or, when I shared this with you, we also shared the quote from Rumi, which is still on Blaze's uh, email signature. Out beyond ideas of right-doing and wrong-doing, there is a field. I will meet you there. <laughs> That's the poem. Out beyond ideas of right-doing and wrong-doing, there is a field. I'll meet you there. So, if anybody ever tells you that, uh, among other things, again, that Judaism is about strict observance of the law, you can say, we may have mistaken it in that direction, but that's not what was intended, not at the expense of how we treat one another. Ruth? Um, getting back to the story uh, that we just told, um, if you think two things, those two people that turned away by Shama. By Shammai. Right. Became Jews because of Hillel. Right. Because of the love of Judaism instead of the strictness of it. Right. Um, the same thing holds true with you and Reconstruction on the membership committee many times, and in my own life too, um, when new members come in, sometimes you ask them why. And many times you'll have uh, a couple of different faiths, but they're welcome here, and the children are welcome here, and so Judaism grows within the family, um, as opposed to other sects, uh, myself included, when I was living in Jersey, and part of conservative synagogue, I had to listen to the evils of intermarriage, knowing myself, had married someone, chose to marry someone that wasn't Jewish. And you don't have that here. So everyone is welcome. So mm -hmm. Pete feels on occasion that he can come here because he's welcome here. And that will only grow Judaism instead of turning people away. And Thank that's you. the openness of Reconstruction, but I think so in Hillel, it's the process and not necessarily the rules. That's right. Thank you. So, and I want to add that for me, the spirit of welcome is what's important. The outcome, will it grow Judaism, are we, uh, is, is, is not my purpose. No, but I want to be clear about that. I'm not trying to pull a fast one. <laughs> Furthermore, I'm not in control of the future. Right? I leave it in as it were, God's hands. And that's very important to make the distinction. If this spirit of welcome also has the, um, uh, uh, the uh, effect of growing the Jewish people, and, and, and you know, I'll be so happy, because uh, I certainly want that. 
But that can't be even my motivation. Um, Barb? I've forgotten that it was Hillel who talked about the process because I find myself, not as often, but in the past arguing uh, that the, that the, what is it, uh, that the end does not justify the means, that it's the means that's most important. Right. You know, and the number of people that will stand by saying, no, no, it's the end that justifies the means. I'm like, not depending upon how you did it. That's right. So in terms of that, there's yet another story in the Talmud that I think I'll share with you. Oh, Sarah, please. Um, just in the previous thing about the two people who went to the Shammai and bumped up against, you know, something they didn't want. The, well, they were asking a stupid question, like, teach me the Torah while saying, and Shammai, like, well, so. he was like, yeah, right, you're being silly. But at the same time, like, bumping into something over here rebounded them to go over here. You follow me? Like, yes. Okay, Hillel, okay right. so that is to say that Hillel needs Shammai and Shammai needs Hillel. Right. They are a pair. And so, the, you know, in that teaching about the law goes according to Hillel, um, because of the way the house of Hillel behaved toward, towards the house of Shammai, um, that's a famous teaching. There's another part of that teaching, that when the Messiah comes, yeah. it's, the rules are going to be according to Shammai. <laughs> Not because Shammai is making good rules too. It's like, uh, and the and because these and these are the words of the living God. But while we're in, but when the Messiah comes, you know that's the end of history. That's when that's when everything changes. Until then, while we're in this world, behave like Hillel. But the decisions themselves, even, are are. Um, uh, they're valid, right? They, they, yeah. They both work. They both work. Mm -hmm. They both work. The question is, how, how did you behave? One, one now and the other one. Later. You can use the other one later. But while we're hearing this later, when, when we're all sitting at the great feast and in, you know, the paradise. But meanwhile, while we're here, the reason we're doing them according to Hillel is because of the example Hillel set and how he treated people. Um, did you want to add? Oh, Blaze and then Rob. You know, Hillel's answer about teaching the Torah standing on one foot, how many times have I thought when somebody asks me something or I think something that it's like, oh no, that can't be possible, or my inclination to say it's impossible or no or whatever. Sorry. And there are some people sure that was wrong. There are some people in my life who can offer me a perspective that is truly unique on something that I haven't had. And every time that happens, it's always for the good. It's always positive. It always opens me <coughs> to a new vision and something to emulate for myself. Not to say no, not to stop the conversation, not to, but to offer something that really is different that maybe has never been thought of, at least by me or somebody else before. It's so valuable, and I have a few people in my life who do that, and I really treasure that because I can learn so much about how I would like to be walking in the world and how I can catch myself when I'm not. 
thank you. So I'm going to say it again. Hillel only exists with, the, with Shammai in the Jewish tradition. Hillel needs Shammai. Shammai needs Hillel. It's about their debate. It's all, that's what it's all about. It's about their interchange, just like you're saying. If we can't open, and here we are, again, I don't need to elaborate. If, 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 our, if our debating camps just become armed and uh, disconnected from each other, uh, we'll fail. We'll fail in, in, our, in our project, uh, whether it's inside a synagogue or in our whole society. Rob. So thinking about this sort of holy debating of Shammai and Hillel, you know, I'm, I, I guess I'm wondering, my question is, to me, I connect this back to our lessons around the other and treating the other with respect. And I'm wondering if there was any, any discussion um, uh, amongst the rabbis about that, that this, this is, there's sort of a similar teaching, really. It's like, if I can embrace another person from outside my group, um, can I also embrace another idea outside of my own? And that's sort of, so to me, it's, that's, that's what I was hearing. I think that's all implicit and part of this, the, the, the thrust of this teaching, exactly what you're saying. And I don't know it exhaustively, but I, I think that's exactly what they're after. Uh, there was a hand over here, Lori, and then back over here. So I'm looking at number 20. Number 20 on page 9? On page 4. Oh, on page 4. Ah, everyone turn to page four, look at number 20. This is a whole other teaching. Yes. Rub, uh, let's go to it in a minute, because maybe someone had something they want. That, sure, I'll trust that. But did someone else have something they wanted to say? Sarah Just and the, David. Put the yin, yin needs yang, light needs dark. It's all the same. Like you can't have, you can't see dark if, if you don't have light. You can't see light if you don't have dark. It, you know, it's all that kind of thing. Like you need the balance of it all. Right. Yeah. Once again, uh, David and uh, uh, Diane. I'm wondering about the judgment one that we discussed earlier. Oh, do not be. Sh do not judge do not another person until you've stood in their place. Because it's do not judge until some something you do something. But and what it's saying is that when you do that something, oh, I'm questioning. When you do that something, does that give you the right to judge? Oh. So I'm wondering about the, the rightness, when it's right to judge. I have a question about that. That's Is a good question. Yes. That's a good question. Um, I guess once again, it's about how we're deploying our judgment. Are we doing it so that we can be the star? Are we doing it because we, we sense there's a common good at stake here that, and that we need to use our good judgment to intervene? So yeah, of course it's all right to judge. I mean, there's a saying that we didn't, we didn't speak about yet, which says, and when you judge people, tip the balance in their favor. 
Um, so, yes, of course, we're judging human beings. The question is, are we doing it for our own aggrandizement? And aggrandizement goes in a lot of directions. You know, we can just feel self-satisfied and self-righteous. That's plenty of aggrandizement, right? Uh, and, our, and we've gotten paid. Our, our self-righteousness has been reinforced happily by our judgment. And we can be happy in our self-righteousness. Um, that's, that's kind of self-aggrandizement. Or are we doing it for the sake of a greater good? And that's why Hillel says, don't judge anyone until you've stood in their situation. It's, a, it's, a, it's like a, um, a preventative against doing that. Um, Diane and then Sarah. Uh, so I'm reminded of the, <clears throat> the rule of improv in theater to always say yes and. Whatever the other person says, you say yes and. You don't contradict them because that stops Boring. the play. That's <laughs> <laughs> right. And, and this is something that my husband taught me in dealing with our daughter, uh, which is to always say yes and then go on to make our case. He's not that good at doing it with me, but he's very good at doing it with her. Good. And I've, I've tried to learn that. When, you know, sometimes I'll be in a meeting and somebody will say completely something completely ridiculous about what we should do. And I try not to say that's completely ridiculous. I say, yes, and what about? Good strategy. Yeah. Very good, very good. Sarah? Well, just that there's the two aspects of judgment. There's the critiquing version of judgment, and then there's the discernment version of judgment. Oh, those are good words. Critiquing or discernment. Right. Another way of saying uh, picking it apart or trying to uh, use your uh, opinion to move things in a positive direction. Mm -hmm. What's your intent? What's your intent? I mean, my prayer for all of us here in our interactions in the synagogue and then whatever we take with us from these, is that we'll be clearer about our intentions when we are, say, judging other people. Um, and we'll watch ourselves. And then we'll determine before we act whether our motives feel worthy. Um, it's, which is a good segue into the one Laurie said. Take a look. Uh, tell me again, it was on page four, number 20. And number 20 goes with number 21. Yes. Okay? They go together. Rabbi Tarpon would say, the day is short, the task is great, the workers are lazy, the reward is bountiful, and the master is insistent. So I've been sitting here for the past two hours watching the workers outside her and together. Mm -hmm. And I just want to acknowledge the fact that when we first started this synagogue in 1986, there was a small handful of people that helped put the tent up, that put the chairs out, and then we had the Rosh Hashanah service. But what many of you don't know is, they would come back right afterwards the next day, they'd take the tent down, they'd take all the chairs away, and we'd have to do the same thing again the following 10 days. On Yom Kippur. On Yom Kippur. So, and that was because they needed to rent the tent out to other places and whatever, whatever. So now we've gone to the point that we've got the tent, we can keep it up. We still have to put the chairs up. We don't take them down. But it really depends on all of us being out there. And just as the next part says, 
You are not obliged to finish the task, neither are you free to neglect it. Right. Um, to me, it's just an inspiration to just get out there on Sunday and do it again. Oh, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> so we, were, we weren't going cosmic there. We are like, okay, beautiful. beautiful. It is not up to you to finish the task, but neither are you free to um, uh, which means either to neglect it, to quit, to give up, to abandon it. means all those words. So I'm going to quote Reggie Harris. He, most of you know Reggie. Uh, he's <coughs> sung here many times. So I was really suffering um, with our political situation at one point. And I was talking to Reggie about it. And, you know, the discouragement and all the work we've done that now is under all this stuff that we talk about. And Reggie had a perspective that reminds me of this. It's really important. And he said as a person of color in this fight that for him, he's always had the sense that he wouldn't be finishing the fight for freedom. That this is an ongoing mm -hmm. fight and it's our job in the lifetime that we have to do our piece of it and not to be so focused on it has to be completed in our lifetime and went over all the people who oh, Elizabeth Cady Stanton who never saw women vote like all these people who've dedicated their lives to doing good didn't get to see it we get to see the efforts of their work and it's a it's a lesson to focus in that way. Ah, yeah. think generationally. Yeah. Keep the big picture. Beautiful. Well, thank Reggie. I thank Reggie. <laughs> you know, Reggie is a, a, a performing artist. He tours all the time now, um, as he always has for 35 years, 40 years. Um, and uh, we talk because he understands his work now as a ministry, especially in this era. And we compare notes. How do we meet with a group of people and remind them to let their light shine and to keep the big keep their perspective and to walk out of here feeling like uh, I can go on? Absolutely. Bless Reggie. You know, in um, after, right after the high holidays, right after uh, Simchat Torah. I'm flying down to Birmingham, Alabama, where Ellen and I, one of the things Reggie does now is that he leads civil rights pilgrimage tours, where we're going to, and we're going to join it. It's run by the Unitarian Church, and it's uh, the Living Legacy Project, and he's the president of it, among many other things he does. And he and a bunch of people are leading this busload of us, and we're going to go to all the key spots in, from the civil rights movement in Birmingham, and Selma, and Jackson, and Memphis. And wow. uh, this, the museum's there, and Reggie's leading this trip. And I'm going to go. Wow. When is it? When is it? That's a wow. It's October 19th to the 26th. If you want to look it up, you can, can. It's called The Living Legacy. They do this every year. So I wanted to say that about Reggie. And I wanted to say also, um, that the other thing Reggie has done, because he's the kind of person he is, is that many years ago, he learned through his family tree the plantation his ancestors had been enslaved at. 
And through much further work, he discovered and met his white cousins. Who are children of the same master as his, as his, the Wickhams. And they have become close friends. That's Reggie, right? And they're his cousins. And the Wick, some of the Wickhams are going to be on this tour with us, so I'll get to know them. But Reggie blows me away. You made a CD with him, right? Yes, yes. Yes, we made a CD. The CD is called Let My People Go. Kim and his, his wife Kim and, and Reggie and I made the CD about, gosh, uh, 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 13 years ago. Um, and it's called Let My People Go, a Jewish and African-American celebration of freedom. We have them here. I can sell you copies if you want. It's pretty, uh, it's probably the most amazing, the best musical project I've ever been involved in. So... Avis, we can talk about Rabbi Reggie. <laughs> Joe and I have done that trip, but not with Reggie. We've done it on our own. Yeah. And the reason I'm bringing it up is because when you go to, I, I found Birmingham, the museum there, totally, uh, how can I say it? It was, it was so moving. The, the memorial to the people who were lynched also, right? I, that didn't exist when uh -huh. we did this trip. That's only a few years old. We okay. did this trip quite a few years ago. But when you go, you will think about what you, I forget your name. Was Deborah. Deborah, what you said. That the task is never finished. Yeah. Because what you will see has not disappeared in today's society. That's right. Mm. And that's why you have to keep going and you have that struggle and conversations because, as I said, that task is not yet finished. Well, all, all the police videos we've seen. Well, we, yes, I think, I think we have to have our head in the sand not to be aware of the utterly endemic nature of racism in our society. And anti-Semitism. And anti-Semitism. And uh, in the broader world, but I really want to focus in the US on the place of racism. Uh, because, thank God, I've never had to worry about being killed because of the color of my skin. And that's a whole other story, a level of, of fear to walk around with. Diane? Um, I want to tell a story about my brother. Who, speak next month. My brother, who moved to Israel right after college and has spent his whole life working towards the uh, original Zionist dream of, uh, you know, a more utopian. Her brothers kept fighting the good fight. I know him well. And, uh, well, that's, you said you robbed the punchline. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't know. It's okay, you didn't know. But <laughs> one time not that long ago, when things were lo looking so, you know, so bad in Israel, and there's so much negative that we don't like that's going on there, I said, how do you feel you spent your whole life doing this? And he's, he said, we fought the good fight. That's exactly what he said. <laughs> and he continues to fight he it. He continues to fight the good fight. He's a good man. So let's conclude then with uh, an exhortation. Look at look on page five, number twenty-two. 
This is Rabbi Eliezer, the son of Azariah, in number 22. He would also say, when a person's wisdom exceeds his good deeds, to what may he be compared? <laughs> to a tree with many branches but few roots. <laughs> a wind blows, uproots it, and topples it over, as it is written, he shall be like a desert scrub that never thrives, but dwells unwatered in the wilderness in a salty, solitary land. <laughs> However, when a person's good deeds exceed his wisdom, to what may he be compared? To a tree with few branches, but with many roots. All the winds of the world may blow against it, yet they cannot move it from its place. And it is written, he shall be like a tree planted by the water, like a tree that's standing by the water, that spreads its roots by the stream, untouched by the scorching heat, its foliage remains luxurious. It will have no concern in a year of drought and will not cease from bearing fruit. So, may our, may our search for wisdom exist in order to strengthen and magnify our good deeds. Amen. Amen. We get to do this next week. Thank you. Oh, the shofar. Great. I'll go get it. I forgot to bring it. It's in my office. Sit for another minute, okay?